so in, in sort of preparation for this, uh, this particular set of verses that we're going through, <clears throat> one of the Bible study leaders here at the church sent me an article on um, some of the early reformers, and it sort of started off by talking about William Tyndale. And, um, you know, William Tyndale was kind of a lot like a lot of the reformers of the early 16th century. Um, he, he, he was working tirelessly in, in the face of, of, of really great persecution in order to make sure that the Word of God was handed down accurately and that it was made available to all. Tyndale was one of the first translators of the Bible uh, into the English language, and, and much of his work helped sow the seeds of the Reformation uh, in England. Ultimately, he ended up losing his life for the sake of the gospel uh, when he was executed as a heretic by the Catholic Church. But it's because of men like William Tyndale and, and, and women, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we have the Bibles that we have today uh, and the teachings that we have today. And that is what Paul is trying to get across to his servant, to his spiritual son, Timothy, that he must guard this precious deposit that has been passed on to him. We're going to continue down with the S theme. I want to see how far we can go before it just gets ridiculous. And, and when it starts getting ridiculous, you can raise your hand and say, please stop. Um, so we'll see how far we can go with that. So we've looked at, at, at what Paul is calling Timothy to, what he's called to, that, that there will be suffering, that there will be shame. Not that It's rather that people will try to shame Timothy, but Timothy is to be unashamed, unashamed of Christ, unashamed of his gospel, unashamed of Paul, his servant, Christ's servant. And Timothy is to rejoice in salvation, and to go out in service, teaching and depositing the truth of the gospel into others. These are all things that Christ himself experienced and did. He suffered shame and suffering. Uh, he brought salvation through his death and resurrection. He, he sent his workers, the apostles, uh, out into service. And today we're looking at the descriptions of a good gospel worker. And so our S this morning is strong character. I've gotten down to having to use the adjectives, I think, with S's, but uh, that's where we are. So we're looking at strong character. Now, I think today our culture gets some of this backwards. We sometimes think that strong character and wisdom, that those things belong to the ministers and to the church workers, uh, for the men of the cloth exclusively. Lindsay and I watch a show called Father Brown. It's a British crime drama, and uh, it's based on a character that G.K. Chesterton uh, created. Um, he's this Catholic priest that goes around solving crimes in his little village. It makes you never want to visit a small British village because there's apparently murder constantly. <clears throat> the fascinating thing is that everyone treats Father Brown with, with, with such great respect because of his position, right? 
He wears the clerical collar, and so they immediately treat him differently. But, but they also treat him almost completely other, like he's almost completely removed from them, as if he's on this like higher ground. Now, yes, it is true that ministers of the gospel are judged more strictly for their roles. But I think the tendency is to think that the priest or the pastor or the minister is more perfect. Now, Paul writes this letter to Timothy, yes, but he also intended it to be read in the church in Ephesus where Timothy was and to be passed on all the way to us today. Because the reality is, He's also writing to any and all workers in the gospel. And so these points are geared for those who will teach. And there are some sections that are specific for those who teach. But to some degree, who here will never teach in some sense? Who here will not teach a child or a friend? And so I think we, we all need to hear the words as we consider the fields in which God has placed us and what he desires of us. Now, in these verses, Paul gives us three more illustrations. Uh, last week, we looked at the, the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. And this week, we're looking at the unashamed worker, the clean vessel, and the Lord's servant. Before we jump in, Let me pray for us. Father, as Ken prayed, uh, we ask that you would help us to think together, that you would help us to wrestle with your word, to to try and understand it uh, in its context, to understand and see Christ through it, to understand how it applies to us. Father, that... um, you would be gracious to us and grant us these things that we can walk out from here encouraged and blessed, uh, having sat under the authority of your word and allowed it to work, do its work in transforming us and transforming our hearts and minds into that likeness of Christ. And so, Father, we lift these things up to you this morning, praying and asking for your help. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm going to start with verse 15, and we're going to come back to verse 14 uh, in a little bit. Uh, Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's a contrast between the approved workman and the not approved workman. They are both judged on how they handle the word of truth. There are those who are approved because they have rightly handled or literally cut straight with the word of truth. And they are to be unashamed. Then there are those who are not approved because they have swerved as Paul says of Hymenaeus and Philetus in verse 18, and they are to be ashamed. Now, what are we to make of all this? First, these are given within the context of teaching. I do wonder, though, if this is not just of the teaching of others, but even to the teaching of ourselves. It may be as simple as saying, 
Stick to what Scripture says. Don't try to pull it out and make it fit what what suits you, what you want it to say. Make straight the path. Don't lead others and yourself down dangerous paths. Cutting a straight path requires some work. Um, Let me explain. Many of us will have done scripture memory uh, if we grew up in the church. We we have memory verses. Um, But I think a a great disservice to children is when we, we have them memorize but not understand. Now, Isaac is two, and if I say, Isaac, what does Jesus say? He'll say, Jesus say, I am the bread of life, and I love it. Now, I will try and explain that to him, but he's only going to grasp so much. Um, I was talking with Wes Johnson earlier this week, and he was telling me that growing up, you know, he had memorized, uh, grew up reciting and memorizing the Apostles' Creed, uh, as I'm sure many of us did as well. But his recitation was slightly off. Instead of believe in the virgin birth, it was believe in the version birth, as in what version of the Bible are you reading? <clears throat> Instead of suffered under Pontius Pilate, it was conscious Pilate, P-I-L-O-T, as in an airplane pilot, and then to sit on the right, Jesus sitting on the right hand of the Father was actually physically sitting on the right hand of God the Father. Ouch! <clears throat> I know it sounds funny, but there is great importance in teaching our children not only what Scripture says or what creeds say, but also what they mean. Also, dealing with the text like we do Sunday after Sunday from here, I want you all to do some mental lifting. I want you to work through the text with me, and that requires... Uh, getting our hands dirty, doing the dirty work. I I want you all to consider the passage, uh, what it meant to the original hearers, uh, how we see Christ through it, uh, and how it applies to us. To do that, you need to be ready to come and do a little bit of work, some thinking, so that together we can cut a straight path. On the other hand, there are those who do the opposite. Verse 18, Paul is talking about the worker who swerves from the truth. So whether the teacher cuts a straight or swerves, people are affected for better or worse. Here in Paul and Timothy's case, Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved. They were teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. In 1 Timothy, Paul mentions Hymenaeus as as having made a shipwreck of his own faith. And Paul hands him over to Satan that he may learn not to blaspheme. Meaning that he's cut him off, he's excommunicated him. that, that, That he's been put out of the community that he would realize his grievous error and he would have a longing to be back with the people of God. Now, Hymenaeus can still confess, repent, and be restored. But at the moment, he's not only making a shipwreck of his own faith, he's taking others with him with his teaching. 
and they were upsetting the faith of some. And what does false teaching or swerving from the truth do? Back to verse 14. It does no good. It ruins the hearers. Verse 16, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. All of this destruction and ruin, it all stems from a swerving from the word of truth. I think we can all, on a small scale, say this is true in our own lives. When we swerve from what we know is right, when we choose what is easy or or what is enticing over what is right, it tends to spread and create more problems. The only way we are able to address it is when we confess and repent and seek and choose what is right. And though the faith of men can be upset the foundations of God remain secure. Picking up in verse 19. This is the true church which God is building and it has a twofold seal. An invisible one, which Paul uses uh, the quote here, the Lord knows who are His and therefore He keeps them safe forever. And the second seal is the public and the visible seal. Namely, that let everyone who names the Lord depart from iniquity. So let them prove that they belong to the Lord by their holiness. Now this imagery comes from the book of Numbers. When Korah and his lot, who are part of the assembly, they are outwardly uh, in the Israelite community, the people of God community, and yet they attempt to stage a coup uh, to, to capture the priesthood from Aaron. And so God showed who was truly with him. He shows who was his. And then he has the earth swallow up who is not his. And so Korah and all those who have gone with him get swallowed up into the earth. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is that only the Lord knows who is his, who is truly his. Only he sees the true heart. But even though we cannot see the true heart, we can see the life. And the life is the one reliable evidence of the heart's condition. Together, God's seals, the the seen and the unseen, bear witness to God's firm foundation, the one true church. And the departure from iniquity leads us into the second example. And the second image we have is of the clean vessel, verse 22. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for good work. This issue has certainly been before us, Uh, as it relates to politics. Here's dangerous territory. Um, Does the morality of the leader really matter? 
And a lot of people tend to cite uh, the, the example or the illustration of a pilot, where they would say, I'd rather have a competent pilot who is immoral than an incompetent pilot who is moral. Though you could argue that almost no political representative has any morals. Um, the role in that case is a leadership role, right? And morality in leadership, I would think, is very important. What is guiding the decisions that that person is making? Are they willing to cut corners or deceive for self-interest? Or is their interest in the people that they are called to serve? Now, I don't use this uh, illustration to create conflict. I use it because I think it helps us uh, I think it, 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 it's hope, hoping to make us think a little bit more clearly uh, as we consider what Paul is saying here. When it comes to teaching, character counts. When it comes to personal counseling, character counts. When it comes to a, a, a matter of the heart, especially when it's in regard to Christ and his church, character is everything. Honorable vessels are used for honorable purposes. In your home, you probably have a place where you keep all your mops and your brooms and your scrub brushes uh, and all those instruments where you put waste and garbage. Do you put those items on display? Let me rephrase that. Do you intentionally put those items on display? <laughs> a lot of you live in a house like me. Uh, no, you probably put out your pretty plates and your pretty silverware out on the table for display, especially if you're having a dinner party or something of that sort. They are used for honorable purposes. The mops and the buckets, they're used to clean up waste, mess, dirt. So how does someone or something become prepared for honorable use? Now, the image that Paul has given Timothy is this of a great house, which we take to be the household of God, the church body. Now, who are the honorable and who are the dishonorable vessels? I struggled with this. I think the honorable are those who have come to the saving knowledge of Christ and have submitted themselves to his authority. Those who are on the firm foundation, the, the, the two seals, the, 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 the visible and the invisible. And the dishonorable are those who name the name of the Lord, but are not yet, that's important, not yet truly followers of Christ. So they may be part of the visible church, but they're not yet followers of Christ in their heart. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. This calls for a conscious, willful cleansing. But this is never, in Paul's thinking, something that we do apart from grace. Right? Paul's advice elsewhere was, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both uh, to will and to work for his good pleasure. God does it, and then by his grace, we will do it. And, this, and the self-cleaning is self-cleaning 
from sin, the, the confession, the repentance. It's a, it's, a, it's a cleansing from the false doctrines that are, that are spread. It's a returning to the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And the cleansed become useful for God's service. They have been, as Paul told the Ephesians, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then Paul's advice moves from making an honorable vessel to this double command regarding the maintenance of it. So flee youthful passion and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The honorable vessel of God flees youthful passion. This is typically interpreted as sensuality. But probably it's better linked with youthful temperament, like headstrong passions of of youth, the the desires that are characteristic of youth. Anyone here with children or teens will definitely recognize these. Uh, These tend to be impatience, uh, harshness, argumentativeness. Now, when we see these in people, particularly adults, what do we say about that type of person? Boy, that person is immature, right? That, I think, is what Paul is getting at. And it's really hard when you see it in the church. You want to see those mature, patient, gracious people, but we tend to also come across the immature from time to time. Full disclosure, sometimes I am that person. Just... Watch me in the parking deck when everyone's leaving. I'm grateful that the Word of God doesn't say that they never have those things, but rather it calls us to flee those things. Flee from that and turn to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, righteousness, the, the pursuit of the ethical conduct that glorifies God. Now remember, it's not that pursuing these things are what save us or justify us. No, that is done in Christ alone. These are what we pursue once we are saved because our desire is to live for God, to love our God who has saved and redeemed us. We pursue faith. Who doesn't want to grow in faith? Who doesn't want to pursue faith? Who doesn't want to be able to nap in the boat next to Jesus as the storm is raging on? I do. We are to pursue this. And I think God tends to grant this not just to people who desire it, but to people who are growing in the knowledge of God. As we open His Word and we allow His Word to speak into our lives, We're growing in faith because we're understanding better and better and better who He is. We pursue love, love for people, love for the church despite all of their foibles and all their frailties. Love for the lost, the the desire to see the, the lost come to the saving knowledge of Christ. 
And we're to pursue peace, peace with the people of God, peace with those around us, as Paul talks about in Romans. And all this, Timothy, is to do in the company of other believers, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. How much easier it is to pursue these things when you are not alone. I'm sure we can testify to that from this room. But you have a, a, a community that's, that, that's urging you in these things. How much more joy when you can rejoice with a body of people who all have the same goal in mind. In Australia, we had an issue pop up where there was a, a friendship that had been put to the test. And there were accusations and there were a lot of hurt feelings and emotions But when the community brought the two together and made them resolve their issue, there was clarity, there was grace, there was love, there was peace. It's a picture of what Paul is urging Timothy towards. And our final illustration is the Lord's servant. Verses 23 to 26 have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The Lord's servant is not quarrelsome. Have you ever entered into a silly and pointless debate? I am positive I enter into far too many of those. What benefit are they? Who who actually ends up winning those? These are arguments that probably have no real helpful answers. They're based on speculation. They, They are not arguments as it relates to the core foundational truths. We know that because Paul has urged Timothy to guard the good deposit. So he's saying, if it's worth it, then you can defend it. But if it's pointless, you stand for truth, but you do not stand for something stupid. It will always cost you something if you do. But rather be kind to everyone. These two things always sound opposed to each other, don't they? How can I be kind and stand for the truth? We usually categorize people as truth people who are always armored up for a good battle. Uh, They like to post really provocative things online. Uh, They're ready to give a good tongue lashing to anyone that steps out of line. And then there's kind people. And they don't really stand for anything. Uh, They're just kind to everyone with no real strong views or feelings or opinions. That is not the picture we are given here. We are given the picture of someone who is kind and a truth person. Ironically, it is the truth that makes the person kind. Let us be those who guard the deposit and are kind because we know our God. We know his heart. We know his desires. Second, the Lord's servant is able to teach. And with this is the ability to correct his or her opponents with gentleness, as we see in verse 25. When you know you stand on the side of truth, when you know you stand with the source of all life, 
when you know you stand with the authority of heaven, then why would you need to be attacking? Why would you need to be unhelpfully argumentative? You don't. You can be gentle. Third, the Lord's servant patiently endures evil. What a great challenge. Why can't this verse say, the Lord's servant obliterates evil at first sight? I I, I couldn't help but consider. As we look at these attributes and these descriptions of strong Christian character, it is all about growing in Christ-likeness. Who was presented as a good worker approved by God, cutting a straight path for others to follow? Who was the vessel for honorable, noble use, doing the will of the Father? Who was the Lord's servant who had nothing to do with quarrels but was always gentle, was kind and able to teach and patiently endured evil? This is what it looks like to grow in Christ-likeness. The more we read and study His Word, the, the, the better we understand His nature the better we understand His character. The more we desire to be like Him. You know, I read through this and I think, gosh, I do that immature stuff a lot. And I I despise it. And I hate that I do that. That is what Paul is telling Timothy. Last week we said, remember he says, remember Jesus Christ. And it feels like it comes at such a strange part in those section of verses. But it's essential because he's teaching them about how to be Christ-like. And how can you be Christ-like without remembering who Christ is? Remember Jesus Christ. Finally, he concludes this section with these words. God may perhaps grant them, meaning those who oppose him, God, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Seth uh, was up in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, uh, and was one of the opening acts for Kanye West. We like to talk about Kanye West here at 9 o'clock, probably not so much at 10.30. But, um, uh, but Seth was saying that um, Kanye was giving his testimony. He was in the hospital, and he was reading through the Bible, and he had a vision of God saying, you've been working for the devil Now you need to come work for me. And I think that fits very well with what is being said here. Here's what I think it's saying. If you have put your trust, if you have put your hope, if you have put your life in Christ, and you are growing in Christ-likeness, and you are correcting with gentleness, God may grant repentance to those who are fighting against Him. They have fallen into the snare of the enemy, but when a person encounters that Christ-likeness of one of his servants who is teaching and defending the word of truth with gentleness, their eyes may be opened. Now, I was trying really hard to find a good illustration to finish this. And... And I know there's a lot out there because the example is obviously of someone who is in the 
the Christian community, within the church family who's lost their way or, or is not a true believer, and then they're, they're won over by someone else. There's the example in Corinthians of the man who's sleeping with his father's wife, which we think is not his actual mother, but probably a second wife. And, and, and Paul's so upset that the church is just turning a blind eye to this. Well, we find out, and then they cast him out. And in 2 Corinthians, we find that he is restored. But I would thought, I'm kind of doing a little twist here, and I wanted to use the example of Rosaria Butterfield. And I know she was outside, but brought inside, but I thought it was a good illustration. And she's coming here in June or July, I can't remember, to speak. So for those of you who don't know, Rosaria Butterfield was a gay activist. She was a professor at Syracuse in literature. She was a practicing lesbian. And she wrote an article in the 90s about the promise keepers uh, and in, in a negative way. And then she received a lot of mail. And she said, I could put the mail in two piles, the you go girl or you burn girl. And then she got a letter from a PCA pastor. And the pastor invited her to a dinner with his wife. And she said, I didn't have a pile to put this one in. It was a Christian who wasn't saying, I hope you die a thousand deaths. And it wasn't someone on my side saying, that was excellent. It was somebody on the Christian side saying, let's, let's get together. And I had to write this down because I, I didn't want to get her, her testimony wrong. But anyway, so the, the pastor develops this relationship with her. And he, he didn't bash her with the Bible. He just taught he cut a straight path. He didn't engage in silly quarrels that would have distracted. But he was kind. And in time, he corrected with gentleness. And now we have seen the impact that it's had, not just in her life, but in the lives of so many people that would go on to read her books, hear her testimony, and be impacted by that story. That's what Paul's talking about. This is what he wants Timothy to be. Don't be the hothead who's slapping everybody around in the face. Be the person who understands the grace of God, that we ourselves are recipients of this grace, not deserving of it, but recipients. And then going out to a broken and hurt culture, whether it's in the church or outside the church, with grace and love and kindness, because we know who we stand with and we know who will ultimately succeed in all this. But we don't rub it in their face. We gently tell them, encourage them, give them the words of life, give them the words of truth. And then it's their response what they do with it. But God may be gracious to win these people over to himself. Let's pray. Father, I'm challenged by this. I would love nothing more than to make this about moralism. And yet if I do that, I am guilty, and I fall short. And the truth is that you have saved us by that amazing grace that came from your Son, Jesus Christ. And because of that grace, you have called me and us to a new life, to a life of strong character. And it becomes a challenge every day to keep up with it, and we don't do it perfectly but we know who our Redeemer is 
And so we seek what you have given us. We seek what you desire for us, that our lives would be transformed. And then we look out into our world, into our community, into our church community, into the outside community. And we have been given these words of life. And so we live that character as best we can. But more importantly, we point to the one who helps us with that character, the one who has given us life, the one who has moved us from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the sun. So, Father, let us be these people, overflowing with grace and compassion, and yet at the same time holding to the truth, unswerving, cutting a straight path that others may follow. We thank you, Father, that we can come together and hear from your word. Would we apply it today, this week, this month? We pray this in Christ's name.